Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we start in on week three of Epic versus Apple here with testimony on day 11 since even courts take weekends. If you haven't been following this along with us, we've got two playlists on Antitrust Epic, which goes from the very beginning of all this last August and Epic versus Apple, just the trial, which is a summary of all of the videos that we've done talking about the information that is leaked out and also more specifically the testimony on days one through now 11 of this very, very important trial. If you're interested in other summary documents, Games Industry Biz has actually been including us in a panel of legal experts that have been discussing Epic versus Apple. They just put up this morning their discussion of week two, where you can see quotes from me about what's going on and some other lawyers who agree with me in some places, disagree with me in others. Always a great idea to get multiple perspectives on these events. I also wanted to show you just a little bit of a peek behind the curtain when I do quotes and actually converse with outlets like Game Industry Biz on things like this. A lot of what I give them isn't included. And that's no problem with the stories that they make. They have to craft what they're doing with a panel of experts, but it's very interesting. If you are interested, I'm of course scrolling through this. You can pause the video to check out what I said in more substance. But one thing I did want to note that wasn't included is what I talked about as a summary of the positions of the two parties in week two. And that was the question posed to me. And I said, in terms of the parties themselves, I think each had some level of success. Epic's primary economist, David Evans, did a good job of attempting to show that the market in question is a legally relevant one and that Apple should not have ignored one of Epic's original arguments that the purchase of apps and content within those apps is an aftermarket in which a brand manufacturer can have monopoly power even absent other market analysis. Apple did succeed in throwing some cold water on such claims, however, particularly when they drilled down on how Evans was combining market definitions within the various portions of their business and on just how contract terms that were admitted to be legal in 2008 could suddenly become illegal in 2010 and how Apple would know when that illegality came into being. And of course, that's a topic that we have discussed throughout this series, certainly as part of the trial and last week as the experts have been talking with Mr. Evans going out there and saying, yes, this was fine for a period of time and then it stopped being fine at a date that I have determined. That didn't make the article and that's okay. Apple, by comparison is playing defense, fighting for the status quo, and so did not have to present quite as comprehensive a theory of the markets and their operation. Instead, they elected to focus on granular details with their experts, running the gamut from trying to establish that Apple does not function solely as a payment processor, to defending why the company should be permitted to prohibiting steering messages in the apps it helps distribute. Then I define what those steering messages are, which if you've been following along virtual legality, you already know about. While not as comprehensive as Epic's experts and with no need for them to be given the party's relative positions in the litigation, meaning that Apple is fighting to not have its contracts voided and Epic is asking for the court to take an action here, Apple's experts did find themselves in some blind alleys and red herring arguments of their own on cross-examination, including continued fruitless and frankly silly discussions on what makes a game, voluntarily introducing xCloud and GeForce Now as positives enabled by Apple's technology while then admitting that Apple was blocking native apps for both services and some meandering thoughts on the nature of market substitutes, complements, and liquor stores. And this part that's highlighted in yellow is included in this article mostly. They actually don't include this parenthetical, which makes it sound like I'm a lot harsher on Apple's performance last week than I actually am. But I really do think that when you get into the battle of the experts, 
you're going to have highly qualified, very intelligent people talking in their areas of expertise about important stuff. And as I say in my first answer here, it really does make you feel for the role of a judge in the matter like this one, because it's very difficult for a lawyer or really any human being to suss out what's actually happening in these markets and what a court of law should do when the law itself is basically one sentence long and says, don't be illegal. And that's what the court is facing today. That's what we've been talking about. So please do check out my answers. Check out this article. I think that Game Industry Biz is doing a great job with this kind of stuff. And with that being said, let's talk about day 11. We're back with Addie Robertson and her wonderful live tweets. Thank you, Ms. Robertson. New week, old trial, day 11 of Epic versus Apple coming up in five minutes. More questions for computer science expert James Mickens. And then Apple executive Phil Schiller takes the stand. And that's all that we're going to hear from today. As a matter of fact, this also could have been titled The Apple Show. Because with respect to Mr. Mickens, who's primarily talking about security in the iOS ecosystem, we are currently on day 11, only looking at Apple's cross-examination. There's a brief section on Epic's redirect of that witness, but mostly we're talking about Apple's cross-examination. And then Apple executive Phil Schiller is an Apple witness. We're actually going to see the last of Epic's witnesses today. That's why I called it an Epic wrap-up. And we aren't going to get to Epic's cross-examination of that witness. So while right now I'm looking at my screen and I have, I don't know, 40 tweets and topics of conversations to discuss with y'all, it's probably going to be a little faster between topics than it has been in the past because ultimately what Apple is going to start trying to do with Phil Schiller and during week three of this trial is establish the greatness of Apple as a product, establish the greatness of the iOS, what they have put out there, And it's not going to be that same kind of battle of the experts pull and tug. It's not going to be the same kind of thing we saw from Epic trying to explain why something should change, but instead Apple trying to defend itself. So what Phil Schiller's testimony is, is essentially how great it was to develop the iPhone and how amazing the iPhone is. And so we'll be be able to go through a lot of that relatively quickly, but we will also see certain aspects of what Apple's going to attempt to do throughout week three and in their closing statements. Everything is expected to finish in this trial next Monday. That may or may not happen. Dates can slide when we talk about legal processes like this one, but certainly early next week is when this is all supposed to finish up. And then for the folks that ask me, there won't likely be an opinion for at least a number of weeks. The judge has to go through all of this information that has been presented to her. She also has to manage the rest of her docket and handle more minute things that are preparing for other trials, that kind of thing. And ultimately, this is going to be a very important decision that even though it will be appealed, is going to have a lot of fact finding that for the most part is going to lock in certain bits of the trial, even on appeal, whether it's to the Court of Appeals or even the Supreme Court. So this is important stuff, and it will take a certain amount of time after all of this argumenting is done. Both sides still have issues with each other's expert testimony. Apple and Epic want to strike parts of expert witnesses Susan Athey and Lauren Hitt, respectively. Judge denies the request to strike. She says she's still going to use her judgment to decide how to weigh each expert's testimony. And that's what we talked about and what very well might be the end state for when we're discussing uh, the testimony of the Xbox executive that Apple's trying to fight against and Epic wants to include. At the end of the day, this is a bench trial. Those motions are fine. The judge can take under advisement that the parties have issues with one or both of these experts. But 
it's just her. So she'll be able to determine what she's happy with in terms of sourcing, what she's not. And ultimately these motions are a little bit more theatrical than perhaps productive. And that's what you're seeing here with respect to the judge's answer to the parties on this question. We're calling James Mickens back to the stand. Apple's attorney is cross-examining him. Apple's laying in right away on Mickens' claim that Android and iOS are in the same rough equivalent class of susceptibility to security risks. He's getting Mickens to admit that he doesn't have hard numbers on this. And this is one of the things that I immediately jumped on when I was looking at the testimony last week, right? Which was, he says, oh, they're about the same. And that has not been the common knowledge throughout the industry. Now, you can disagree with that, but if you're going to disagree with it and you're going to present it in open court, you best come with some numbers. You best come with some data. You really best come with some kind of additional information to present to the court and to the various parties here. And what Apple is pouncing on is that this is essentially a kind of gut feel from a security analyst. And one of the things you'll also see as part of Apple's cross-examination here is a little bit of leaning on him. This is clearly an engineer, software, tech type individual that is focused on how the operating system works, what AppReview doesn't add to that, according to his testimony on behalf of Epic. And Apple's going to try to press him on kind of the politics and the practicalities of this question. I do feel for experts and individuals of all kinds when they get into this kind of situation, because we'll see he doesn't answer those questions, which is proper but it also doesn't provide a lot of extra information for the court because that's ultimately that political question, whether the contract should be voided, what's at stake here. Apple's laying in right away. We just talked about that. Apple asks if Mickens saw actual documentation or just made assumptions about what Apple must be doing behind the scenes on the App Store. Mickens says no. He looked at the lived experience of developers and other info. Apple lawyer says Mickens pointed out bad apps, but he didn't look at how many overall apps Apple reviewed. That's not data you took into consideration, correct? That data wasn't relevant to my determination, says Mickens. And just stepping aside here, just playing the role of judge for a second, if you will allow me. And you can do this as well at home. I don't think that's a very good answer. One of the things that you always have to kind of concept out is when you're talking about failure states. Okay, three of these things got through and that's very, very bad. We'd prefer that didn't happen. Did I block a thousand of them? And does that change the thesis here? Remember, Apple is trying to sit back and say, we are doing something more than Stripe or PayPal that is relevant to our asking for a 30% commission and locking out other app stores, that we want our product to be a walled garden. And we think it's valuable. We think it does something. So in my mind, I look at this and say, this is a good line of attack from Apple. I say, yeah, if they blocked a bunch, nothing is perfect, but certainly that is a part of the story that is worth considering when we are considering whether or not the security features on iOS in app review are working, are doing something more than just a simple payment processor. So I think this is a bad answer from Mr. Mickens, but it's an honest answer. You got to be honest in court. Mickens says again, he's trying to establish that iOS and Android are roughly equivalent, i.e., not that iOS is necessarily worse, but that it's not head and shoulders above Android in the way Apple suggests. Now turning to Mac OS, lawyer asks if he believes there are different security considerations for computers versus mobile devices. I do not, Micken says. And again, this is the kind of answer that I think is useful for Apple. This is undoubtedly his honest belief. That's why he's there. That's why he's there on behalf of Epic. But I think any third party that looks at this says, Okay, a phone is different than a computer. There are different security considerations. It has geolocating. It does other things that 
a computer might not necessarily do. Most specifically, it has things like a microphone. And yes, laptops now have microphones and computers do in general, but the phone itself is more closely related to a lot of personally identifiable information than the laptop. It's also easier to lose and potentially easier to get hacked into. So when you see them say, as an expert, I don't think there's a difference in security considerations for a phone and a laptop, I don't agree. I don't believe you. And so that tends to color the rest of the testimony that you've provided. It's a good line of attack, not because it speaks to anything substantively in what he's had to say, but the gut reaction is, really? They're not different? For context, here from Ms. Robertson, Apple basically said in its opening argument that Mac OS doesn't need to be as secure as iOS because phones collect a unique amount of data and are vulnerable in unique ways, like people being more likely to leave it on a train. And I think that is, again, the better description of reality than they aren't different at all. And regardless of whether you think Apple's theory is correct on how they're different, I think you would have to be very blind from a technological and just a reality-based aspect to look at a phone and a computer and say there aren't any differences with respect to how those things should operate. Part of Epic's entire argument is that the mobility of the phone presents something different from a computer. It seems like that should function as part of the security conversation as well. It presents this kind of interesting uh, bifurcation of experts just coming from the Epic side. And we will see that continue as Micken's cross-examination continues. Apple's moving to one of Micken's other points that you can get apps onto iOS outside the App Store already through the Enterprise Program. Lawyer asks if he has any specific incidents of a business deliberately trying to put malware on its employees' devices. Presumably Apple's lawyer is asking that because he thinks the answer is no. Mickens then discusses Facebook using the enterprise program to distribute a tracking app, which led Apple to temporarily block access to the program, in which we learn two things. One, try not to ask questions that you don't know the answer to. And two, Nobody anywhere, apparently, should trust Facebook because Facebook is just causing all sorts of trouble across all sorts of ecosystems and apparently presented Epic and Epic's expert with an excellent argument for why the enterprise ecosystem already provides a certain security vulnerability in the iOS ecosystem that could cause significant problems. Now, again, as we've talked about in this series, Epic's theory is that Apple's security isn't as tight as they say it is. And yet, it doesn't need to be perfect to justify its existence. So that will be a continuing kind of tension point that ultimately the judge in the court is going to have to resolve. Apple says OS on device security can't prevent apps that cause mental and physical harm. Mickens tries to distinguish between security and content moderation, but Apple's lawyer pushes back. Apple suggests on-device security can't prevent scam, copycat apps, apps that tell teenagers to harm themselves, or apps that ask children for personal information. Again, this particular expert is trying to say that app review in and of itself is unnecessary because the iOS technological ecosystem and those protections are doing the bulk of the protecting of the Apple walled garden, if that's what it winds up being after all of this is said and done. Apple's counter argument here is, sure, sure, sure. If you've got some kind of bit of code that's stealing financial data or personal information, absolutely. But what about content that is just horrible and we don't want it associated with our brand or with our image? And he says, well, you know, that's not necessarily something that the security would actually cover. Apple comes back again to the idea that Mickens treats safety as a matter of strict technical malware vulnerability, while Apple takes a lot more factors into account, 
Mickens said in his report that there wasn't a universal definition of the quality assurance factor. So the lawyer asks, does that mean some of the things Apple does looks for are rather arbitrary and capricious in your view? Kind of. And again, this, this, this testimony gets a little odd from Apple's questioning standpoint because Mickens is being fairly staunch here. He's a security guy. He's looking at the software and he says, well, you know, your guidelines, your app review stuff, the content that you look for, it's pretty arbitrary sometimes. And by counter to what we were just talking about, not matching the reality, I think that does match the reality. I think a lot of people come in here and talk about Apple versus Epic and say, Rick, how can you look at this and say Apple isn't a bad actor? And I say, well, I'm looking at it from a legal perspective and Epic's theory of the case presents all these potential problems with the console ecosystem and everything else. But Apple has a history of making some really oddball, really questionable decisions for how it decides to enforce its rules in given cases, right? That's why we're talking about Roblox so much. And yes, they will be back in this video. And it becomes an issue for Apple on a holistic sense that if Apple is out there with these rules that they say are open and transparent, that they apply to everybody equally, if those rules, even if applied quote unquote equally, have all the ambiguities and vagaries necessary for Apple to do whatever it wants to, then a court could come in and say, well, that presents a problem. You might be a bad actor. And certainly if we've been in virtual legality for a while, you know the terms and conditions of a tech company, Apple included, are designed by their very nature to be ambiguous and vague and allow them all of this power and Apple uses it on a fairly regular basis. It's a good point of attack from the Epic side. It's just coming from Apple's questioning of this expert. Apple's lawyer asks if iOS app distribution were to be opened up to third parties and developers were given free reign to write apps that mentally or physically harm individuals, they'd be able to run those on iOS, right? Micken says third-party app stores are still going to have standards. Now, this is, again, a technological kind of answer. They are from where, right? The standards come from Apple enforcing some kind of rule set. And the plaintiff here, Epic Games, is trying to get those rules thrown out the door. Lawyer asks, if Apple doesn't want pornographic apps on iOS, but a third-party app store wants to allow them, who should prevail? It's a complex policy issue, says Mickens. Two sides would have to come to an agreement. And what if they don't? This is always the open question when people say that. Well, they'd have to agree. What if they don't? What is the rule if they don't? Because right now, Apple's in control, says, if we don't agree on you putting this thing in our store, it doesn't go in the store. Epic is sitting here and asking the court to say, if we don't agree on whether or not this should go in the store, we get to put it in the store. And the expert here is basically demurring on all of this. And yeah, of course, there's bad stuff that Apple wouldn't want to be associated with. But ultimately, that's up to the court. Lawyer asks if Apple doesn't want pornographic apps. We just looked at that. Apple is still going through what it sees as Micken's hypocrisy, claiming he treats things like scams as not security issues in technical analysis, but uses the existence of scam apps as an example of the App Store failing at security. And again, if that is in fact the case, and there was a long fight about this uh, that you can check out in this Twitter thread about whether or not that's actually happening, it would present another problem for the overall analysis. Again, Apple's getting up there in cross-examination and trying to poke holes in what this person said based on what they said in its entirety, how they wound up saying it, what they might've skipped, what's omitted. And one of those things could be, hey, if you said Apple is failing on all of these different theses on scam apps and other quality assurance metrics as he describes them, 
but you don't count those as being things that the iOS is representing as a security issue, then you're actually framing what our ecosystem can do without app review in a way that's entirely disconnected from the reality of our operating this phone system. And maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. I don't think we're at a point in this particular testimony that we're actually getting a lot of useful bits of information, but that's not going to stop the parties for a little bit longer. Epic's lawyer is back up asking questions, going back to issue of whether Apple would have to host objectionable material like pornography with third-party stores. Judge steps in and asks if this was in Micken's original testimony or if I'm getting something new. And they've identified a paragraph that is sort of related, so maybe it's from the written testimony, etc., etc. Micken says yes. You could have a system where Apple would have full control over which third-party stores apps can be installed or one where Apple has no say at all. There's a variety of different approaches to locking down content like pornography. Similarly, Apple could scan for malware or particularly objectionable content before somebody can install a third-party app. And what he's coming out here with is, sure, Apple might have control. It could give up control. It could be something in the middle. And it's not terribly helpful to what the court is looking at here. In all of these situations, Micken says Apple could still turn off the spigot and refuse to let apps install on the device if it decides it wants to block them, unless the court rules against Apple in this particular case to which you're testifying, Mr. Expert. And again, one of the interesting things here is that this expert is almost diametrically opposed to the answers that Mr. Evans gave, another Epic expert, in last week's testimony when asked a very similar set of questions. Where he said, well, if Apple doesn't want a specific store, if that store is presenting things that are bad, can it turn it off? And he was basically very skittish about that answer and said, well, we don't want to be in a situation where Apple is acting like a monopolist and controlling what stores appear on its storefront. So your experts, if you're Epic, have presented this very kind of amorphous thing to the court And the court in general has a reluctance as an institution, not this judge in particular, but as an institution in the United States to go and set terms, to set parameters of how private parties are going to engage in business relationships. So one of the things you want to do for the court, if you can, is detail exactly what this thing should look like, how it is fair to the public and to you and to everybody else, and how it's not going to destroy the business model of this other private actor in most instances. And where you're getting messed up, where Apple's having some success here, is that you've got an expert that says, they could do something. Could be a middle ground. That could work, right? Apple's lawyer's back and countering Epic's example of a Sesame Street store by bringing up Itch.io again. You understand that both the Itch.io's of the world and the Sesame Street's of the world would both be able to distribute their apps on iOS. Micken says that's his point that Apple could decide to block one or the, of those and not the other. He says whether they can or do this is up to the court to decide. No, not exactly. Right now, Apple can. Right now, Apple could change its rules for store within a store and other things and say this is allowed and this isn't allowed. The actual court case here is to prevent Apple from making that particular distinction in virtually any way. And yes, the court could come up with some kind of middle ground, some kind of Solomon-esque Uh, alliance between the two parties that just everybody loves. It's rare, but it can happen. But right now they haven't been presented with the parameters for making it happen. And Apple is making it a little bit muddy. After all that, Epic has no more witnesses to call with some caveats. And obviously it will still cross-examine. Epic can re-ask for witnesses and do some other things. But ultimately, that's it. 
Epic has finished its case. So right now, before we get into Apple's executive, which has a lot of tweets, what I would say is, did Epic prove its case? As the plaintiff in a case like this, they have to show that Apple was acting in an anti-competitive fashion. They have to prove that that is what was happening and that they were harmed by it and that the court should offer some form of redress. They should fix the issue. So leave a comment to this video about whether you think that at this point in time, before Apple's even kind of thrown all of its volleys of defense at Epic, whether or not Epic has made its case here. Certainly they've presented some compelling points. They've made points about the fact that Apple has effectively ignored their aftermarket theory. Apple has cross-examined those experts and tried to highlight that they believe that people buy the phone on a holistic basis and that aftermarket shouldn't apply, which might be a winner at the end of the day. But certainly Epic has also exposed a number of instances where Apple is acting at best randomly. What is a Roblox? Why is Netflix treated like Netflix? We'll get more of that in this video. Why do you make the choices you make, Apple? And to the extent it's arbitrary and capricious or worse, looks like it's advantaging your own products or services or offerings, that's the kind of thing that could potentially win the day if you're Epic. So what do you think? Has Epic made its case? And understand that in all likelihood, Epic's case, whatever it is, is going to be slowly chiseled away at as Apple presents more and more of its defense. And we'll certainly be paying attention to what Apple presents, as well as what Epic can do on cross-examination in order to make sure that that defense isn't as strong as it otherwise could be. Personally, I think Epic has presented some good thoughts. Obviously, I came into this trial thinking their theory had some significant and serious flaws in it. I don't think they overcame those flaws in their half of the case. So I think probably... The bulk of this decision is likely to go Apple's way, but there are instances where Epic could still make significant inroads, and certainly some of the interjections from the judge suggest that she is potentially looking at solutions that would, on their face, require her to find that Apple is a monopoly. And if she does, that opens up a lot of the uh, spigots and fences and gates against the console manufacturers and everything else, even without a total Epic victory. So it will be interesting to watch as to what the opinion actually holds in respect to these two parties. Now back to the testimony. With that, Apple is calling Phil Schiller to the stand. And this is the last witness we will talk about today. He's mostly just going to talk about the wonders of the Apple ecosystem. We're going to have about five minutes of Schiller before break. So Schiller introduces himself. He's been with Apple 30 years, currently an Apple fellow, previously senior vice president of worldwide marketing and was working on the app store since the beginning. Schiller briefly left Apple in the 90s, right before Steve Jobs came back to the company and reorganized it. He's describing pre-reorg Apple as being heavily siloed, separate, and near total failure. When Jobs came back, he changed that structure completely. Each business division at Old Apple kept its own P&L statements, profit and loss. After that, we became one statement for the whole company. Were there benefits to this change? Yes, many. Now we all work together on one team and they make decisions together. You gotta love that introduction, right? As we talked about when we were looking at the motion documents and the complaints and everything else, there's a certain amount of rhetoric to everything that goes on here. And it's a little bit triacly when you actually think about it. Apple coming out here and being like, oh, the greatness of our worldwide marketing and the products that we put out. And then the court goes to break. After they come back from break, Lawyer is asking Schiller to explain why he, as a marketer, was part of the development of the original iPhone. 
Well, product marketing is involved from the very beginning, Schiller says. The process of designing the iPhone started in 2004 and released in 2007. And the date we have for the App Store is 2008. So this was a long time in coming. A lot of effort, research, and development goes into it. And certainly one of the interesting things is that marketing goes into it as much as engineering or anything else. If you didn't know that already, now you do. But certainly anything that you buy, you see on store shelves or is otherwise made available to you, marketing played a factor in how that product was developed. It's not just after it's made that you decide on how you're going to sell this thing. It's part and parcel to the actual design and creation, especially for what we've already termed a consumer luxury good brand like Apple, which is really focused on look at this shiny bit of jewelry with an apple on the back and whether or not it performs as well as something else might not matter as much as the goodwill associated with that apple with a bite out of it. Schiller says Apple was trying to innovate after the iPod. We knew that one day people might start to put their music on their phones. We thought if anyone was going to kill the iPod, we should do it ourselves. And then they go through a little more iPhone history. Now going over the challenges of an advanced operating system on a mobile device. But Mac OS was not appropriate at all. It was very large, required a lot of compute power, wasn't battery efficient, and didn't support phone calls. I imagine you could convince Mac OS to support phone calls, but the rest of that makes a lot of sense, right? You have battery limitations in a phone. You have computing power limitations in a phone. And so it makes sense to create a different operating system that is going to function on a different type of device. The most important aspect, according to this witness, was security and privacy. The idea of this new computing device in your pocket means it's capable of more new things. It's going to store information around our life that we're not used to having all the time in our pocket. The software is part of the product we're making. It's a very different business model from companies that license operating systems to other devices. And there's two important things here. One, as we talked about earlier in this video, one of the interesting things that we're watching Apple try to dance around a little bit is the notion that the phone is very, very different from the Macintosh, is very, very different from the PC market because we want to establish that we don't have to have the same kind of security features on the Mac that we do on the phone to justify our business decisions when Epic wants to come in and say, well, Mac is wide open. Why isn't your phone wide open? We want to justify that. But also, we want to make clear that we think that in the universe of apps and more specifically games, if we can limit it to games, we've already won a certain small victory here in court that games are competitive across not only iOS and iPhone and iPad, but also Steam and Macintosh and Nintendo and Xbox. So they have to be the same enough to be in a similar market for substitutes, but different enough to justify what it is that we do with them. And I think that for the most part, they're succeeding in explaining how they arrived at the business decisions that they did without coming across as evil monopolists, right? Which is what Epic is trying to frame them as and which they might be successful at when they get to cross-examine this particular witness. But Apple is trying to say, instead, we've got all these business reasons for doing what we did. There's a business reason for why the Mac and the phone are different. There's a business reason why, even though they're different, we still think when we talk about the app store and the apps on our phone, that they are competitive with what's on the Xbox and the Nintendo and elsewhere. And I think they're doing a decent enough job at that. We'll see more on cross-examination. It's always easier to kind of present your written notes and your bullet points and your prepared statements, even though these are technically testimonies. They are obviously, and without ethical problems, 
prepared for how this is going to look in court as you present to your own side's counsel. The second part is the software is part of the product we're making. It's a very different business model from companies that license operating systems. This is very, very, very important to this case, or at least in my view it is, and it will be interesting to see if the judge winds up agreeing. But Apple's model here is a product that consists of hardware and software, and that software contains access to third-party development apps, an app store and everything else that it uses its rules for. That is undeniably different from Google having an operating system and an ecosystem and selling it out to other hardware providers. That Apple has a much stronger case that if a walled garden is to be permitted anywhere, it should be permitted by a single manufacturer essentially providing two components to a single product versus Google saying, we're going to sell this operating system, then we're going to put rules on who can use Google Play, and we're going to do all these other things that wind up with you having the same conversation that the Department of Justice had with Microsoft in the 90s. And I personally think that's very important, and I think it's a distinguishing factor between the Apple case and the Google case, and a lot of the other things we're discussing. Note, however, that it doesn't distinguish the iOS operating system or the ecosystem in and of itself from how the video game console manufacturers operate. Schiller disagrees that there's a phone duopoly. He says Apple has lots of competitors in the market. In what market, Judge asks? Mobile devices, mobile phones, Schiller says. And we don't actually get a follow-up here. This is interesting because one of the things that the parties have all but kind of agreed on is a certain amount of duopoly of not the phone market, which is why this isn't a lie and why this is probably okay, but the operating system market, right? If you take the Android portion of the phone market, that actually consists of a whole mess of different phones versus the iPhone, which is, even though it's got different versions, just the iPhone market. So Schiller can get up there in court and say, no, 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 there's a ton of phones. There's a lot of different phones in the market, even though they either operate on iOS or they operate on Android. That's still an interesting kind of angle of attack because while the parties, even including Apple, have for the most part kind of given the duopoly standpoint on the operating system market, it is worth noting that as a phone, the iPhone is competing not with Android, but with all these different other kinds of phones that maybe all run Android. Does that help them out? Probably not. Does it hurt? It might, actually, because the gut reaction is, I think, the one the judge says. You say, wait, it doesn't? There's not a duopoly? Everybody says there's a duopoly. Are you sure? Uh, and so I do think that runs the risk of potentially saying, hmm, should you believe me on the rest of the stuff I'm talking about, just like we talked about with the first witness on cross-examination? There were no third-party apps when the iPhone launched. That was a deliberate decision. We thought that we wanted to create an Apple experience with built-in native apps from Apple. The security and privacy risks of opening it up to other apps was too great and not something we could solve when we launched the iPhone. So instead, we offered up the idea of web apps, Schiller says. There just wasn't the time to consider third-party tools. And he's talking about when this thing was launching, we thought what we wanted to do was just have native Apple stuff. People come for the brand, they come for the little logo on the back. We don't want all these third-party developers in there. And that's what we are going to do. That was quote unquote, the plan. And understand as we talk about this middle section of his testimony here, that one of the things that Epic tried to present was that Apple from day one had a plan to lock in people into their ecosystem to keep them trapped there, whether they were users, or developers, and that was part of the evil monopolistic plot. And Apple is trying to assuage fears that that is in fact what they did. And part of that is saying, we didn't even plan for a third-party store. 
The initial software development kit, when they did decide to add third parties, was a tremendous effort, says Schiller. For the better part of a year, the entire software organization was working to create and document the APIs and get them to work. We try more often to not announce software until we're ready to release it to the world, at least in beta form, directly to developers, Schiller said. But this was different. As I mentioned, we were beginning to see jailbreaking and rogue app development without documented APIs happening, and we were very concerned that this would create unreliable, unstable devices. Now, Apple doesn't go into this a lot, but I think that this argument is a potentially strong one for Apple over the course of the third week. We've talked about it in Virtual Legality. You can jailbreak an iPhone. When people say you should be allowed to have an app store, you should be allowed to do these various things with your hardware, you can legally, you can do these things with your own hardware. The question is whether Apple should be forced to support it. And from Apple's perspective, as a brand manager, as the folks that are responsible for making sure that people feel nice things about that Apple on the back of their phone, because that's what gets them their premium charge, They don't want to be associated with things like malware and piracy articles and very, very bad things on their platform. You don't have to like that. You can hate that. You can think that they are too protective of every little bit of their intellectual property. But there are a lot of brands that are that protective. You go and you look at Disney or most other media companies. They are so, so, so protective about what their intellectual property can be associated with because the value of that intellectual property is so ephemeral. And it can be lost in a moment with some bad articles and bad associations that might not be Apple or Disney's responsibility, but that are nonetheless associated in the consuming public's minds. And so if you are Apple, one of the things that you can argue about all of this is that, yes, we want to have security, but ultimately the value proposition for our hardware, what we actually sell into the marketplace is directly based on not being associated with stuff that people don't want associated with our brand, that that's valuable, that is competitive. That's how we compete in the marketplace. And I am interested to see if Apple winds up hitting on that more, and especially whether Tim Cook winds up hitting on that when he finally takes the stand at the end of this trial. We're looking at some statements from Steve Jobs around the iPhone SDK launch, saying he wanted to make the App Store work for developers big and small. Schiller elaborates, saying he felt like other platforms at the time were focusing only on big developers. Schiller contrasts the App Store from the iTunes Store. iTunes popularized the 99 cent song, but Apple decided, well, that model doesn't work here for apps because of their variety. So it let developers set the price with a 30% commission, which Schiller says it's never raised. Right from beginning, we knew there would be many developers who just want to distribute a free app, says Schiller, but others wanted an easy and secure method for paying. At that point, those were the only two classes of developers. Schiller says developers didn't have to pay for credit cards, hosting, etc. Yes, they paid for their SDKs. But what he's saying is, I'm just talking about all the engineering Apple does. We don't charge them separately for that work. Not that that model would work at all. But backing up a step, let's talk about their business model, because I do think this is important. When you set a fee based on a commission, it does a couple of things. One of the things it does is it allows you to permit developers to have free games or free applications in your ecosystem. It allows smaller developers and smaller companies to say, we don't want to charge that much and Apple to be okay with it. One of the really big, fairly obvious from an economics perspective, but hidden secrets involved with an app store of all kinds is that 
the bigger companies, the ones that are making all the money, are subsidizing the littler companies. It's one of the reasons Epic is upset about all this, is that they've got Fortnite. It makes a huge amount of money. They give a huge amount of money to Apple, and then Apple goes out and touts the brilliance of their ecosystem by saying, all of these different developers don't pay us a dime, and we support them, and we do all these various things for them. And effectively, the Epics of the world help subsidize that functionality. Now, Apple can return volley and say, well... It is the very breadth of our ecosystem and all the things that it affords that gets the eyeballs in the door so that so many people are playing Fortnite over here. But Epic clearly disagrees. That all being said, a commission is definitely better than a flat fee for this purpose. And one of the things that popped up in the motion stage early on last fall was Epic essentially saying, well, there could have been other ways to charge for developers to avoid this subsidy problem, to avoid all the issues that we're raising here. They could have had a flat fee. They could have done these all of these other things. And the judge and Apple both looked at that and said, yeah, they could have, but that's not what's at issue here. The question is whether this is illegal. In general, we're not in the business of mandating different business models for this purpose. And from Apple's perspective, they came out and said, well, that'll kill a lot of these developers and applications and kill the ecosystem. And how is that better for the public or for the consumer at all? And Epic continues to fight that battle, and it's an interesting one, but certainly there are justifications for why a commission allows for more participants in a marketplace. Now, Apple's bringing up something Epic has raised many times during this trial, a statement where Steve Jobs said he didn't expect the App Store to do more than break even. Did Apple ever promise that it would not make money, lawyer asks. No, says Schiller. And again, we get direct examination. You say obvious stuff so that it's in the court record. Obviously, when Apple comes out with their CEO and says, we don't know if this will ever make money. We're in the hardware business. We're selling iPhones. We're trying to make that product more attractive. So we're doing these other things. We don't know if it will ever be a separate revenue source. Obviously it was. Obviously it is. Obviously it's one of their biggest revenue sources. But this isn't a promise that it's not going to make money. We just don't know. We think we're adding to the overall product value pie. Apple bringing up now what Epic had claimed is a promise to not make more than a billion dollars per year from the App Store, suggesting it lower commission rates after that point. Apple reads the email that contains it. Schiller says when he sent that email, he was spurring conversation, keeping in mind that there would be App Store competitors and Apple might want to come up with new ways to compete. In other words, although he doesn't explicitly say this, it was never a firm commitment. And I unfortunately don't have this email in front of me. I wasn't able to find it. If you see it, please link it uh, to a comment to this video. I'd love to check it out. But suffice it to say, this sounds to me like people spitballing strategies. If we get to X amount of dollars and there are other competitors that we need to worry about, we should consider moving our commission rates around. But as with anything else, the price is what the market will bear. And Apple had the success, had this giant growth in developers and eyeballs in their ecosystem and didn't need to. Obviously, there's no obligation to lower a price and they're not using their power to increase the price. And that continues to be one of Epic's problems in their theory is to actually establish that Apple is acting like a monopolist when they stand pat and, and don't really change much of anything. Does Apple have competition for app stores? Yes, Google Play, Samsung Galaxy Store, Amazon App Store, Microsoft Stores, and game consoles. I consider them competitors as well. Schiller says of Switch, PlayStation, and Xbox. We think that a user is going to consider these different places when they're considering where to get their games, Schiller says. Note that he's specifically saying games here, which is the scope Apple's been trying to set while Epic pushes for the suit to cover all apps. And that's Ms. Robertson with a little editorial there. And yes, Apple is trying to make clear that what we're talking about, Judge, is essentially Fortnite and where players can play Fortnite and have that be a successful experience. And we don't need to expand it to the overall world of applications and everything else, because if you do, very bad things 
can happen. So these are our competitors. And you should be aware that when I bring up the com consoles, when I bring up Switch and PlayStation and Xbox, they could be affected by a decision here. Allowing Yahoo's API would be the same as throwing out the whole plan we have in place, the email reads. Lawyer asks, what was the plan? So this is going back to Epic saying Apple started with a plan and then Yahoo tried to get their API on and they refused it. And Schiller has an email that says this would throw the whole plan out. And what is Schiller's response? Well, it was to have an SDK, a software development kit in an app store and review all apps and make sure they were secure. Schiller denies that the plan here referred to a monopolistic plot as Epic has characterized it. Now, since their own expert has said that Apple wasn't acting as a monopoly when the phone and the app store originally launched, it's unclear exactly how this all pieces together as a puzzle on Epic's side. Uh, but certainly there, there was always a plan has had some holes in it from the very beginning. Terms of contract are standardized for large and small developers alike, Schiller says. Big developers can't negotiate a better deal. There is a program that lets developers get access to additional tools like Apple Wallet, TestFlight, etc. Now, this is probably cutting the onion a little thin. We have actual historical evidence that big application developers like Amazon and similar have not necessarily negotiated a better deal solely for themselves, but changed the entire way that the App Store operates really with a focus on allowing those developers to do what they want to do. We've also seen things like allowances, actual entitlements for specific things that developers get to do within the app ecosystem that other developers don't get to do. Now, I had a conversation on Twitter with Tom Warren of The Verge on this very point over the weekend where I said, well, the app guidelines themselves actually have a paragraph that says some developers are going to get entitlements and some aren't. So as far as the rules being open and transparent, that's actually true because the rules are silly because Apple has put a rule in here that says we can choose to give some other people some benefits that you don't get. So they're not lying when they say that you can't change the deal and we give everybody the same deal. It's just that the deal includes a provision that says we can treat people differently, which is six and one half dozen of the other. I totally get it, Tom Warren in The Verge. But when we talk about lies in front of Congress, when we talk about lies in a litigation like this, that isn't happening. You just still have this overall patina of Apple maybe acting a little bit arbitrarily. Schiller's going over the explanation Apple has given before why it doesn't take commission on physical goods. It can't guarantee they actually arrive. This logic goes for things like Lyft, Uber as well, per earlier discussion. And I think this makes a lot of sense. And again, Apple's main goal is to take what Epic identifies as arbitrary and potentially anti-competitive and try to explain to the court why it's business related, why we made a decision like this and how it can make sense. And it's not up to the court to say you're wrong. It's up to the court to determine whether or not it's legitimate. And then if it's otherwise siding with Epic, that there's some monopoly shenanigans here to determine whether there isn't a better, less restrictive way of accomplishing the same legitimate business end that Apple is otherwise purporting to accomplish. So in each instance here that we see Mr. Schiller talking, Apple is trying to say, oh, that thing that looks like we're just trying to favor uh, our own video games over your video games and we don't care about Lyft and things. Well, it's really because we don't know whether a car ride has happened. We don't know whether something has been delivered, that kind of thing. And that's a justifiable business reason. In fact, one of the things I've pointed out in this series is that Apple doesn't just say that you can use a different payment mechanism for those purposes. It says you can't 
use in-app purchases. You can't use the app store payment system for those things because presumably there is a certain amount of liability associated with failure to deliver and bad things that could happen on a Lyft drive that Apple's lawyers are trying to get out of. You want to avoid liability for those kinds of things. And that's, if anything, the most justifiable business reason for something coming from a commercial lawyer's perspective. What percentage of game apps use freemium model in the app store? 17%, says Schiller. Approximately 75% are free. About 6% are paid and the rest are premium. I love mobile words. Or subscription. Judge asks for clarification and Schiller confirms this is just games, not apps. For the record, Judge, we're just talking about games because that's all this court case is about. Uh-huh. Okay. All right, Mr. Schiller. I think Epic's going to come back around the horn for you on that one. But this is important stuff. There is that subsidy. You can see it. 6% are paid. 17% are using some kind of freemium model. And 75% are free and using the premium, presumably. Making some money for the developers at some point. This is a model that works to increase the size and breadth of the store, presumably increases the value that somebody sees in iOS and an Apple device, doesn't necessarily increase things for Epic and the Epics of the world, which is why you get this friction and this fight like we see here. Is IAP a product, the lawyer asks. It is not, Schiller says. Then what is it? It is a feature for our commerce engine on the App Store. Now, if that isn't a coached answer, I don't know what is. And again, when I say coach, nothing wrong with that. You want to make sure that your witnesses are going to say what you expect them to say. But certainly part of this court case is Epic saying IAP is a separate product. It's illegally tied to the product we all want, which is access to the App Store. And so very bad things can happen and we deserve redress from the court. And Apple has come out with all of its witnesses and said, no, no, no. IAP is a holistic feature of here, our commerce engine on the App Store. Okay, sure. I tend to agree that IAP is holistic, but these words are just funny to me. What happens next is up to the developer, Schiller says. And here we're talking about uh, the process of managing your newspaper subscription when you go from iOS to Android. Schiller says, developers can choose to transfer your subscription or you can cancel your old subscription and start a new one. And as Ms. Robertson says here, this is basically what Epic's Witness says. They just disagree as to how inconvenient that is. But there's not really a better way to handle that necessarily. If you're actually going to buy a subscription through one of the operating system services, just like if you're going to buy your HBO subscription through Hulu, it should be anticipated that you're going to have to go back the way you came in order to cancel or otherwise alter that subscription. If it's a concern, don't buy it through the operating system. And yes, there's a certain amount of technological info that we expect the public to have on these kinds of things that maybe they don't have but it's still worthy of note that it's up to the developers and how they actually function outside the iOS ecosystem and not up to Apple so much. We're now discussing the video partner program that offers members a lower streaming commission if they integrate with Apple TV. He says the rules for this program are different from the rest of the App Store, but it's open to any developer who chooses to be in that business, not just big developers. And whether or not that's a good answer is really kind of going to be dependent on how you feel about the rest of Apple's answers. Is it okay for them to say that the video partner program that gives you benefits for doing certain things in separate parts of their ecosystem with Apple TV is available to anybody that wants to be in the video content business, even though it's not available to anybody else. Does that actually help answer the question of Apple not acting anti-competitively, not just benefiting certain parts of what is a very, very large company? I think that's not a great answer. And I think that could be something that Epic continues uh, to pounce on potentially in cross-examination. Now we're starting with the Apple Small Business Program, which lowers the commission rate for smaller revenue apps. When did that start? The original work started in 2016, says this witness. When did it go into effect? 
We started taking applications in December of 2020 and the discount started January 2021. Now, this is important because as you can tell from these dates, that's actually after the mega drop, after the epic lawsuit, that this all went into effect. And I think we might have even done a video on it here in virtual reality that says, hmm, that looks like it's coming from pressure from epic. They are saying that the original work started in 2016. The question would be what exactly takes so long to make a 30% into a 15% in your back end? Why would it take five years? And certainly this isn't really the whole story, which even their own witness will admit. Why did the change happen? I thought it was time to get it done and put it out there. Honestly, the number one reason to me was the pandemic. That was a personal motivation for getting it done, but was the Epic lawsuit a factor? I would say it helped me get it done. I would absolutely agree it helped to get the program done. I wouldn't say it's why we did it, but it helped. And one of the things Epic is saying is that they are a monopolist. They don't have this outside pressure. They would lower their rates if there was this pressure. And lo and behold, Epic files a federal lawsuit and certain rates are cut in half. It's a pretty good story Epic can tell on that, that there wasn't market pressure and they put it on them through the use of the federal courts when maybe another app store could have put it on them even earlier and more efficaciously. Schiller's talking about app search ads. Epic's Tim Sweeney complained that companies could place ads on search terms for their competitors. Schiller defines this as conquesting. Always watch your terms internally if you're a big giant megalopolis of a corporation. And says Apple had to actively decide whether to allow it. Schiller says Apple decided conquesting was pro-competitive for smaller devs. If a user is simply always searching for the biggest developer's terms, then a small developer will not get exposure unless they can advertise against those terms. And that's an interesting way to look at it. Generally speaking, when we talk about buying advertising placement, we don't usually think of that as advantaging the smaller party against the bigger party. And in fact, that was Epic and Tim Sweeney's complaint is saying, well, these billion dollar corporations are going to buy the ads and they're going to keep all of the rest of the smaller companies close for essentially the loose change in their couch. And I tend to side with Tim Sweeney and Epic on this one. I don't think it's illegal to have Apple like selling their search engine responses, but it's not a good look for purposes of this particular conversation. Then we get to anti-steering. And as we talked about last week, the judge is certainly interested in anti-steering rules. Schiller compa compares it to someone going to Nordstrom and looking at a pair of jeans. You wouldn't expect to see a tagline that says, oh, you can go next door and buy them at Macy's. Now, first of all, this metaphor is very similar to ones we've used in virtual legality, I note. But I also note that the stores that uh, this particular witnesses shopping at are different from the ones that I have tended to use in my metaphors. I've talked about circus tents. I've talked about Walmart and Best Buy and out comes Nordstrom and Macy's. So, you know, we're shopping at different places. That's fine. This is the worldwide marketing head and executive at Apple. He's probably making a few more bucks uh, than Hoaglaw here at Virtual Legality. But suffice it to say, I find this metaphor to be pretty useful and a good description of reality. I know a number of you do not, but Apple is presenting the case that we expected them to be presenting. Apple is now reading out a promo email Phil Scheller got from Epic after signing up for Fortnite through iOS, indicating that users could play on other platforms. And Schiller says there's no problem with that in Apple's rules. What if it said, if you go to Fortnite on your PC, you can buy V-Bucks at a cheaper rate? Would that violate it? The judge asks. Schiller says it would be fine if Epic sent a blanket email to all of its users, it's just the targeting of the brand new user that we helped them get. And this is in the gray area. I've looked at the app guidelines a hundred times. There are specific rules about what you can say to your customers within the app. There aren't a lot of great details about what you can say outside the app. And Apple appears to be attaching the immediate aftermath of signing up through iOS with what you're not allowed to do with respect to steering. And it's interesting 
to know that they say that a generalized solicitation saying V-Bucks are cheaper elsewhere is totally fine because I do think that takes some of the wind out of Epic sales and could help answer the question that the judge has, which is, okay, do I really want to make a court order that says that you have to allow more specific messaging within the ecosystem directly if this mail solution generally works? And we might wind up getting something on anti-steering at the end of all this. Certainly the judge has indicated she's looking at it very closely. So why doesn't Apple allow stores within a store? Schiller says the store's apps wouldn't have committed to Apple's terms of service and guidelines. Moreover, there would be no integration across our system, he says, so things like parental controls wouldn't work. Itch.io gets another mention. Would having a store in Apple's store such as Itch.io, would that be acceptable to Apple, the lawyer asks? No, for many of the reasons we've been describing. I'm not sure what the exact percentages are, Ms. Robertson says, but incidentally, a huge portion of Itch.io games are browser-based, not downloadable apps. Phil Schiller then gets asked about Roblox, my nemesis, my mortal enemy, which you may remember Apple's earlier witness said was not a game. In my opinion, it's a game, Schiller says. And that's fair. You want to be honest. Roblox is clearly closer to a game than an application. And Apple went down some really terrible blind alleys last week on this particular question. That being said, just like when you've got Epic experts not agreeing on certain fundamental issues of the case, Roblox may not be a fundamental issue, as we've talked about, for the reasons we described in previous videos. It's still not a good look for your own people to be disagreeing on what the heck the thing is. And this might actually represent a new tact that the lawyers behind Apple have come up with over the weekend, because as I said last week, their tact last week was silly, silly. Schiller says, well, it's actually a new type of app. Oh, he's not committing to game. I think in the industry, Schiller says, It's made up of multiple games. It's not just one game. All right, it's a game. Who knows? And the idea of who creates them and what they're for is a new phenomenon in our industry. It's pretty neat stuff or new stuff. Fun fact, Roblox actually changed its name. We talked about that. So wait, why is Roblox not a store within a store? It gets to a concept that's pretty new of creator versus developer. I understand this is a little complicated. The developer of the Roblox app is the Roblox Corporation and they have to submit that app for review. So they're taking responsibility for all of what's on it. Roblox itself allows a class of its users, often called creators, to create games within the Roblox app, and those are added to Roblox and they're released as content within the app. And then Ms. Robertson editorializes, Apple is okay with iOS apps that allow access to many games, but only if those games are created by creators and not developed by developers. And this is tricky, right? We've talked about this. I don't think actually it's terribly difficult to distinguish the Robloxes of the world or dreams, if you're more familiar with PlayStation 4 and their ecosystem of the world, or even the Fortnite creator mode from things like the Epic Game Store or Itch.io that serve as processing portals for different apps entirely separate from what it is that the store app itself does. When you talk about Roblox, you're talking about an architecture. You're talking about an engine that allows for people to build things within that engine. And as Apple rightly says, Roblox is taking full responsibility for what is made within that engine. That is pretty easily distinguishable to me, but certainly the way Apple has gone about it is not helping their case at all. Ms. Robertson is right here to point out that this actual description of events is silly. Now, when she continues on, she will wind up saying, well, it's a little bit unclear how this doesn't impact things like xCloud and Netflix and elsewhere. I don't think it's that unclear, but certainly Apple has done itself no favors. 
Wait, the lawyer wants to go back to Roblox. Is all creator content in Roblox using tools and content that were approved through app review? Yes. And so that's the Roblox architecture itself. Yes, it is. To be clear, I understand Phil Schiller is basically trying to make a point about Roblox's code being a known quantity. This is Ms. Robertson speaking. And therefore, the apps are not posing a threat. But if you account for all the concerns Apple just raised about inappropriate content, it's a huge can of worms. Like every way you slice it, Roblox, as an example of an acceptable thing for Apple's App Store, you raise a bunch of questions about how it compares to xCloud or the Epic Game Store or some other banned service, prohibited service, really. They, I don't think they were banned uh, for the most part. And she raises a good point. Apple has to be clear. It has to be transparent. It has to have bright lines that people can understand in order to make this case strong, both in court and just in the court of public opinion. They are failing at that. That being said, I really don't think it's altogether that difficult to establish that Roblox is a different thing on a fundamental level from a third-party app that sells fourth-party apps into your ecosystem and that those apps don't get separately approved. Now, will that prevent Epic from potentially five years from now doing some kind of weird thing where the Unreal Engine is its own architecture and you've got Unreal chits to make Unreal games in an Unreal app that's actually a store? No, it doesn't. And Apple's answers here might just suggest to Tim Sweeney that he should invest in that kind of solution. Who knows? Uh, but certainly, I do think Roblox as an entity is distinguishable from what we're talking about at the heart of Epic versus Apple. Lawyer asks Schiller if he's familiar with Steam and considers it a competitor. Schiller says yes. Epic said it wasn't. Apple's lawyer asks about a recent Windows Store price drop, which Schiller says he read about in the press. And you wouldn't talk to your competitor directly about pricing, would you? Never which of course calls to mind that Tim Sweeney actually went out there talking about the mega drop, talking about what was going to become Epic versus Apple and Epic versus Google in August. He contacted Phil Spencer at Microsoft and said, essentially, look out for the fireworks. We're going to be showing off the value of your console and all the various ecosystems. So bear with us as we drop our prices. Uh, and they're trying to point out that that's not what you would do. Of course, it could blow up in their faces. Tim Sweeney could easily come back or his counsel could come back and say, yeah, I talked to Phil Spencer. Why? because Xbox isn't a competitor to Fortnite on iPhone, and that's what I was concerned about. Schiller is now talking about his discussions with Microsoft about xCloud. Schiller says he told Microsoft he would love to have xCloud on the service as long as it followed its rules, which included submitting each game separately as a different app. Now, how is this different from Netflix? The judge asks Schiller. Schiller says Netflix is just delivering a bunch of one specific type of content, which is video. And we're not reviewing that content, we're reviewing the features of the app. XCloud does much more than videos. Now, XCloud is a cloud-based streaming service. At its fundamental level, it's an interactive video that's being sent to your phone. So this never really plays terribly well to me. That said, the next thing he says plays a little bit better. Schiller says the app store is not a movie store. People don't expect to search for an individual movie and find it, but they expect they can search for a game in the main app store. When you bring in games in a different way, it no longer works as designed as a game store. And this, if it were actually broadened out, and it's not here, could be a justifiable business reason. That there is a reason that the app store is created the way it is, that the tabs for games are created the way they are, and that we want to have a focal point for our user base to know where and when they can find games on that service. And if you have to go into nested layers of things like xCloud or the Epic Game Store or GeForce Now, that creates a certain amount of quote unquote friction, to use a popular word in this litigation, and makes their product potentially less valuable on some marginal basis. And if they wanted to make that case, I think it's at least a case they could possibly make 
That being said, if you've been following this whole series with me, you know that I think Apple's decisions on xCloud and GeForce Now are perhaps the weakest that they've made in the past few years and are by far, in my opinion, the best avenue for somebody like Microsoft or NVIDIA to bring a lawsuit against them. As it stands in Epic versus Apple, however, they're mostly just tangential side pieces to what is a fight that I think is significantly less strong than Microsoft itself could have brought. So uh, we got that not a movie store. Were any costs for advances allocated to the App Store? I think this is the final thing that Mr. Schiller is going to talk about in his testimony from today. And that's this notion that you had a bunch of advances to the iPhone. You had the Taptic Engine, you had LiDAR, you had all these various things. And the question from the lawyer is, were any of these allocated to the App Store? When we think about what the costs of running and functioning as an App Store in the iOS ecosystem actually are, he says no. And as Ms. Robertson says here, the point is for Apple that the benefits App Store developers get from these kinds of things aren't factored into Apple's App Store costs, rebutting Epic's claims that it has a 70 or 80% operating margin because as they talked about with the financial analyst last week, that doesn't take into account the fully loaded costs of operating all the research and development for their entire phone. And again, I don't think that's going to wind up being uh, the hinge point for any of this because I think that their uh, financials on the actual operating margin of the App Store uh, were pretty significantly rebutted by Apple. A lot of these kind of get into an ambiguous gray area of who's winning and how the judge is going to take it. I really don't think that happened with that accountant. I really thought that was a pretty poor testimony on Epic's behalf. Apple's whole argument is that you can't separate the App Store from other elements of iOS. So when you put a game on the store, you're getting all this tech as a package deal, including the fact that we've got a clip here of Tim Sweeney himself showing up to talk about how awesome metal is. Epic addressed this a bit in Sweeney's testimony. It's trying to thread the needle between Apple makes great tech and Apple's tech isn't good enough to justify its restrictions. Apple, again, getting out there and saying, we are not a payment processor. We've built this ecosystem. We have the conferences. We're constantly improving our phones and bringing more people in. You get all of this for quote unquote free. You're getting it for 30% that you pay us in your commission for participating in the App Store, but we're not charging you extra for it. And that 30% is inclusive of this massive package of how awesome Apple is. And that really concludes Mr. Schiller's testimony uh, for today. We will get more of him tomorrow. As Ms. Robertson says, he is scheduled for nine hours of testimony. I think he did about half of that uh, in the testimony we covered in today's video. So we will definitely be getting some cross-examination from Epic. And it will be interesting to see what tact they take. So please join us for day 12 of the testimony. We'll be going over it when we have a little bit more information about what was actually said. Otherwise, if you like these conversations, Epic versus Apple, business, law, technology, video games, and the rest, we could not do it without the support of viewers and listeners like you. So please consider supporting the channel on Patreon, giving a tip on Streamlabs, buying a shirt, buying a mug, or if all else fails, just subscribing, giving up votes, even giving down votes. If you think I said something silly, or if you just want to give a down vote today, I don't mind. Do it on my channel. Or otherwise, tell your friends that we're having this conversation because I think this conversation is fun to have, it's important to have, and hopefully it's entertaining and educational at the same time. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. 
If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.